Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, good to be back again, and uh, really pleased to see you all here. And I'd like to welcome Reggie again, uh, Maria's husband. Uh, we've known each other for quite many years, isn't it? But although we hardly speak, but uh, I'm so pleased to see you and have a chat with you. Maybe we can catch up for coffee uh, very, very, very soon as well, and catch up with some old times together. Okay, uh, hope that you have had a good week, and I've got more than enough notes to, to go around, not to worry, uh, you uh, help yourself to it, yeah? Okay. So we're going, to, we're going to move on from what we have left off uh, last week. Uh, we have completed, finally, finally we have completed part two of our series on, of, of studies on the characteristics of agape love. Uh, agape love is a New Testament teaching, basically, as we know, that uh, is from the Greek word agape, which means uh, charity, if you want to call it in a generic sense. So uh, we have seen the characteristics, we studied through all the, all the, all the, uh, the characters of, uh, characteristics of agape love as Paul has uh, taught us from First Corinthians chapter 13. So uh, by now, I'm sure that we all have a good, a fair grasp of what uh, this, uh, this, uh, this attribute of love looks like according to the Bible itself. So uh, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to move on to part 3a, uh, which is another aspect of agape love or love uh, you know, that we, I think that is important for us to, to spend some time thinking about it as well. Uh, it's to do with biblical love in the Old and New Testament compared. So we want to, I want to compare the, you know, the concept of love as taught in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The reason why I, I've decided to, to, to address this issue is because said that there are many people who do not actually understand the way of agape in the Bible. You know, for these people, they, 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 there are people who think that the God of the Old Testament you know, is very different from the New Testament God. I don't know if you come across people like that. I, I've read uh, you know, material on that before. You know, these people think that the God of the Old Testament, he was very, very stern, very fierce, very fiery, isn't it? You know, he strike people at death. You know, uh, he, uh, he punished people and he punished nations. But when it comes to the New Testament, it seems that uh, these people seem to think that the God of the New Testament is very loving, fatherly-like in, in his character, very tender. He's not, uh, he's not the fierce God of the Old Testament itself. And that's why they say, well, the reason is because when you look at the New Testament, uh, there are so many references to love in the New Testament as compared to the Old. So therefore, it seems to show that uh, the, the New Testament God is a lot more loving than the Old Testament God. Over the, the, couple, the last few decades in the Brotherhood, uh, amongst the Churches of Christ, uh, there, there have been an increasing number of brethren being influenced by denominational teaching. You know, uh, yeah, that this teaching that has been gone, uh, out, gone on for many, many years and has crept into the brotherhood in the last few decades. The idea that the New Testament is not about commandments. The New Testament is about love. You see? So the New Testament is, uh, is all about love. It's nothing to do with commandments like the Old Testament. That's the kind of thinking that has been floating around in the brotherhood. Uh, Max Lucado, uh, for some of you, you may, you may have heard of his name. Max Lucado, he writes a lot of so-called Christian books. You know, he made a lot, a lot of money out of it. And he is not, he's, he's an apostate from the, from the Lord's Church. He, you know, he, he's, he's no longer a faithful uh, member of the Lord's Church. And he sells a lot of his books. And in one of his, uh, in one of his uh, interviews uh, in 1989, just like how many years back, 1989, you know, uh, Lucado said this, uh, you can see the quotation in the handout. The Bible is a love letter as opposed to a blueprint. For me, many years, for many, for, for years, Christianity was a moral code. It is now become a love affair. For years, there, there, there were rules and regulations. Now, it's a relationship. So that's how Lucado looks at the New Testament. He calls the New Testament a love letter from God. As opposed to the Old Testament, the implication is that the Old Testament is more of rules and regulations. You know, very stern and fierce and strict God. New Testament is very different. That's what he's implying there. And this is the kind of attitude and mentality being influenced in the brotherhood today. Uh, you know, sadly, in the churches of Christ. Your brethren, are, you know, they have failed to see that, the, 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 that there's no difference between uh, the God of the Old Testament and New Testament. Why do people want to... Uh, you know, to adopt this love letter mentality of the New Testament. The whole idea of this love letter mentality is to romanticize the Lord's teaching, to make it, uh, you know, like a romantic feeling. It, the, it is, this is just simply an attempt for us to take us away from 
understanding the Bible from a logical manner. That means that, you know, that they are, they are trying to say it's a, love, it's a love thing. It's a feeling thing. It's not logical. You don't have to, you, you don't have to think about it. So that's, that's, the, that's the one, one of those attempts uh, that they are trying to do. And it is, also an, it is also an attempt to move the concept of agape love away from being a mindset to a feeling thing. We have seen from the characteristic studies that the agape is a thinking thing. It's a mindset, it's an attitude. So the love letter idea is to move this thinking away and to see that love is actually a feeling. So when you talk about feeling, it means basically that how you feel is different from how I feel, isn't it? We feel differently. So that in other words, that nobody is wrong. Because we love one another, we love according to feelings. So that is, that is the attempt. And also that finally, that it's, it's also an attempt to create this impression that love is a New Testament teaching. You know, that, that the, 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 the God of the Old Testament did not teach love. He did not practice love in the Old Testament. Because that the law of Moses, it was a strict legal system. It's all about law. You know, unlike Christ, Jesus only talked about love. So that is, that is the kind of thinking that goes around the world today. And, uh, and sadly within the brotherhood as well. So is this the case? Is this the case that in the New Testament is a love letter? And is it true that the God of the Old Testament is very different from the New Testament? So this is where that we, we're going to attempt to, to consider this. Uh, 3A of this series uh, focuses chiefly on the Old Testament first. Yeah. So when it comes to the Old Testament teaching, we remember that Jesus has once affirmed, isn't it? That there are two great commandments uh, in the law of Moses. And both of these co great commandments come from love, which is based on love. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That Jesus said in Matthew 22 verse 40, and he says that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we, we know what it means. What it means is that basically that love God and love our neighbor form the foundation of Moses' law. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, the entire Old Testament according to our Lord rests on the foundation of love. That's why that on your notes you can see this picture that I done. I copied from somewhere else. I'm not an artist, so I copied from somewhere else a tree, isn't it? And you can see the roots, the roots of this tree. Is based on love for God and others. So that, that's the starting point. And we have also seen from our series of studies on the characteristics of agape love that agape love is a principle, isn't it? It is a mindset, it's an attitude, it's a principle. And since Jesus said that Moses' law has its foundation and roots on the principles of agape love, so what it means for us is that God's design for Moses' law for Israel was for it to be applied as flexible principles because it's based on love. That's the intention of God. You see, Moses' law that is based on love, which is a principle, implies that Moses' law is meant to be applied as principles, not law, and not rules and regulations as you know, people seem to think. But of course, that when we open our Old Testament, we look at the book of Leviticus, for example, we find many strict quotes in there, isn't it? There are a lot of rules and regulations you know, on, on the law of Moses itself. So, one might be scratching your head, you might be scratching your head and wondering, hey, wait a minute, suddenly you just say that God's intention was that Moses' law be applied as principles, but how do we explain Leviticus, for example, which has so many rules and regulations. You do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this. How, how, do, how do we explain that? So I think this is where that, uh, we, we want to you know, engage ourselves in a, in a study this morning and spend some time thinking about this. How do we reconcile the Levitical rules, which are strict rules and regulations, to the idea that Moses' law is based on principles? Okay, let's consider this. Uh, with this morning in the Bible studies, we look at presumptuous sin, is it? Uh, blasphemy, we, we talked about that uh, briefly, so you have an idea. 
So we're going to revisit this again. Let's look at the law of presumptuous sin to begin with. Presumptuous sin is a sin that is of the highest order in Moses' law. What it means is that it is the, the sin that attracted the death penalty. Okay? The word presumptuous in the original language of Hebrews means that you actually, in the modern terms, you stick two fingers up at God. It means it's a, re it's a rebel sin. It, it, it's a sin committed by somebody who is in rebellion against God, God's express word. Okay, so that's what presumptuous sin is. So, the idea is, is it has been developed from Numbers chapter 15, uh, verses 30 to 31, where the book of Numbers tells us this. Numbers 15, 30 says, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord, and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So in this account, in the book of Numbers, Moses teaches us the principles of presumptuous sins. He doesn't tell us what kind of sin is presumptuous sin. He says that uh, one who does anything presumptuously. So in other words, Moses was stating the principle. Okay? And then there is a punishment that comes with it. The principle of the sin and then the punishment of the sin that comes with it. But then of course we had to ask ourselves the question, what was a presumptuous sin? How does it look like? Moses said presumptuous sin, okay, but how does a presumption sin look like? And okay, what should the offender be, be dealt with? How should he be dealt with? I think these are two questions we need to we need, we need to think about. Let's consider that. What was a presumptuous sin and how was an offender to be dealt with. So first of all, let's bear in mind the book of Numbers 15 here. The principles. When Moses, when Moses said that presumptuous sin is a sin where one brings reproach on the Lord. The, that is the principle, reproach on the Lord. That tells you what kind of sin is a presumptuous sin. It is a sin that brings reproach on the Lord. But why do you want a presumptuous sin? Why should that be a presumptuous sin? Moses tells us. It is because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. So this second set of principles tells you why such a sin is presumptuous sin. It brings reproach to the Lord what it is. Why? Because he despised and has broken the commandments of God. And then he shall be cut off from his people. So this tells us what must be done to the offender. That's the punishment. You know, that he shall be cut off from everybody else completely. So now we know from Numbers 15 what this sin was and how it looked like, isn't it? It brings reproach on the Lord. The offender has despised the word of God, broken his commandment. And how, uh, uh, you know, that he should, he should be dealt with. He should be cut off from his people. So that was, that was the how. So now the question is, all right, good. We got all the principles at hand based on Numbers 15. But how does this actually work? How does the principle actually work? So this becomes very interesting. And this is where that Moses in Numbers chapter 15, if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. You know, and you look at verses, from verses 33 down to 36, you will find an example where Moses actually used a case to illustrate how these principles work. You see? Numbers 15, 32, Oh, let's start with 32. Where the scripture says, Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, this, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. So here we have an example. You know, the example that follows God's principles of presumptuous sin before in the same chapter tells us that evidently that God must have intended for this example to be 
an illustration, an explanation of what a presumptions, presumption sin was and how it worked. You see? Because the principle was there, the example was just beneath it. So the example must be there to show us what kind of sin this is. So if you notice in this account, isn't it? Those people who caught this man breaking the Sabbath day and uh, went, went out to pick up sticks, they caught him, they brought him to Moses, but they didn't know what to do with him, isn't it? Because uh, nothing has been said what they should do with this man. So obviously that the people knew that breaking the Sabbath was a sin, so they must have been told before, don't do certain things on the Sabbath, and somebody has done something on the Sabbath, so it's a sin. They, are, they, they caught him, but they brought him to Moses, the reason was because the scripture says they did not know what to do with him. That means what kind of punishment is there, you know, for, 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 for breaking the Sabbath? What kind of punishment? So this is where that it becomes very interesting for us that Moses, in writing the book of Numbers, you know, it's a written record for the future generation of Israelites, you see? So where they will not be hearing from Moses ever again. So they, they need to know what the law of God was. So this was, a, this was the case example that Moses recorded in the, in, 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 the, in, the, in the book of Numbers so that future generations will be able to read it. And so when they read it, they will understand what a presumptuous sin looked like and what must be done to them. So this is, I think this is the reason why that the Sabbath-breaking law, in the case of example, was inserted you see, in Numbers 15 to explain what presumptuous sin was. So when did this uh, case of this man picking up sticks happen. And from the biblical account, we know that uh, in Exodus chapter 16, you see that the thing is, that one thing is that you need to bear in mind is that the Sabbath day commandment, yeah, not working on the Sabbath day, but rest on the Sabbath day, was not introduced for the very first time in the Ten Commandments. Okay? People seem to think that Sabbath day was first introduced in the Ten Commandments. It wasn't the case. It was before the Ten Commandments about two weeks perhaps or, or more, at least two weeks before the, the Ten Commandments were actually first declared. So it happened in Exodus 16, where the scripture tells us specifically uh, in verse 23. In verse 23, the Lord said this to Moses and he said to them, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil today, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. And then you look at verse 29, it says, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day, sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his tent, in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So this account in Exodus 16, was actually, was actually a reference to the manna incident. Remember manna from heaven, that fell from heaven? Yeah? The people were hungry and they had nothing to eat. They were complaining. God said, okay, fine. The next morning, you go, you'll find manna, you know, on, on, the, on, on, the, on, the, on the bushes or on the ground. You pick them up, you can make it into a waffle and you can cook them in fire and then it becomes like bread, you can eat it. So that was the manna incident here where the Sabbath law was actually introduced for the very first time. You know, so it was a precursor to the law, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, which was actually in Exodus chapter 20. And this was about two weeks before the Ten Commandments were first declared at Mount Sinai. So God's commandment here was very simple for the manna thing. Six days Israel is to go out, collect the food. Collect what you can eat. Don't, leave, don't, don't collect for extras for overnight because the next day they'll be fresh supplies. You remember the story, isn't it? Some of them, they collect more than they had, that they could eat. Next day, it, the worms came in and then they said, oh, no, it stank and then they learned the lesson. Okay, we just take what we need to eat for the day and the next day we collect it again. Do this for six days, Moses said. And then on the sixth day, you collect double portion. The reason is because, Moses said here, the seventh day is the Sabbath. So you rest. You don't need to collect any because you collect double portion on Saturday or what we call or Friday. And then, so on Saturday, the Sabbath, that you don't have to collect it anymore. The food is there, you can just cook it and eat it. You don't need, you don't, you don't need to go out. So, it's very simple. And if you read the account itself, you notice that Israel, for the first time that they heard this, they didn't really believe God. On the seventh day, they went out to collect on the Sabbath. 
But then they found nothing. And then the Lord rebuked them, said, you know, that, why did you do that? Believe me, you know, and then they learned from the lesson from there. And since then, they, never, they, they didn't go out on the Sabbath day to collect any, any, any more food. So if you notice in Exodus 16, 29, how Moses repeated the Sabbath day rest to them. And he specifically told Israel that this is the day of Sabbath that the Lord has set aside for you to rest. Ensure that you rest and don't break it. You see? And no one is to leave your place. Don't do any work, in other words. Don't, do it. don't go out and do any work. Rest at home. But nothing has been said here for the one who decided to go and do some work. Nothing has been said here, you see? So all we find is that, yes, rest, don't go out. Then, we go back to our Numbers 15 example of the Sabbath breaking. You find this illustration there of this man who has left his place. He went out to do some work to collect sticks. Uh, why did he collect sticks? Probably was not to, not, not to uh, play with it, but rather to maybe to start the fire, to cook food. That was why that he went out to pick up sticks. And we know that uh, Moses' law said that you cook the day before, you see? And then whatever you have there, the next day you eat it. But this man seems to, seems to have ignored what God said. And he left it, and so on Sabbath day he had to go and collect firewood to cook his food. So he broken the Sabbath. So that's where that Israel found him breaking the Sabbath commandment, brought him to Moses because Nothing has been said. What would happen to a man like that? So they didn't know what to do. So from here, we know several, several facts. Number one, the man who was caught on the, on the sab- breaking the Sabbath day, obviously broken the Sabbath day law. And number two, Israel didn't know what to do with a lawbreaker like that. So what it tells us is that this event must have happened quite early, very early on. Because if you, if you read from the book of Leviticus onwards, or even Exodus onwards, you find that God actually mentioned anyone who breaks the Sabbath day law should be put to death. It means the commandment was given before. So if God has already said that it's execution for the, for the Sabbath day breaker, why did Israel not know? So unless this must have happened very early on. But it could not have happened earlier than the manor incident. Why? Because the manor incident was the first time the Sabbath day was given. So we can, I think, reasonably suggest or, you know, or surmise that this, in, this incident of the Sabbath breaking must have happened maybe shortly, just after the, you know, the, 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 the manner incident itself, where the law was given, but no punishment was stipulated. So that's why Israel didn't know what to do. They knew it was, a, it, it, it was against the law, but they didn't know what to do from there. So here you are, you have a situation here. They didn't know what to do. They went to God. And God said that uh, you put him to death, stone him to death outside the camp. And this incident of the Sabbath breaking example was inserted by Moses into Numbers 15, just after presumptuous sin. So from here we can see how it works. God's law under Moses started as principles. Presumptuous sin is this, 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 this. You do this, this, this to the person. The principles were there. But how do you apply the principles? The Sabbath day case is that principle is an example of it, how you apply it. So in other words, what Israel has learned at that instance was that breaking the Sabbath is a presumptuous sin. Because he has despised God's word. He profaned the Lord's name. Why God gave you rest and you did not actually use it to rest and you do something else, you will cause the other nations to say that your God tell you to rest, you didn't rest. So they will speak badly about God. They profane the Lord's name in that way and he, because he despised the word of God and therefore he shall be cut off from his people. So how do these principles work? Stone him. Execute him. So you see the application itself. Since this was how the, 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 the law of Moses was designed as principles. You see? As principles. Okay, this was, this was how God wanted Israel to understand Moses' law, as principles. Not as strict rules and regulations as the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' days thought that Moses' law was. You see? It all started out with principles, followed by examples. 
Yeah, so that was how God wanted it. So, since we have raised the issue of the example of the Sabbath day, let's think about the Sabbath day. Why was the Sabbath day commandment so important? You know, that uh, God has inserted this as an example for, of, presumptuous, of a presumptuous sin. Why was it so important? It is important because the Sabbath day was a special day. That's why it was special and, and important. God has specifically set it apart. Make this day different from any other days of the week. In Exodus 20 verse, verse 8, this is the first time in the Ten Commandments that the Sabbath was mentioned under the Ten Commandments context. God said uh, to, to Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So it's interesting. Bear in, bear in mind that God, God said, keep it holy. And then in verse 11, Exodus 20, Moses continued that he said, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay, when people read this commandment of the Ten Commandments, uh, generally people believe that, well, the Sabbath day was a commandment that was so important in Israel because it was the seventh day and where God rested from his work and that's why that he commanded the people to rest. And also that, uh, you know, that uh, later on the God also said the Sabbath day was important because when the people rest, rested on the Sabbath, Sabbath day, it, it, it was a reminder to them on how they were slaves in Egypt before. In those days, there was no rest. Now you can rest, so it's to remind them how blessed they have been, how God has delivered them from slavery onto freedom so that they can rest on the seventh day. So that was, that was imp these, these are important principles. But I think, I, think, I think that there is one very important principle that people often overlook. This is where we, we, we want to see why that the Sabbath day commandment was so important to Israel. The importance and significance of the Sabbath day commandment can be seen in the words that Moses used. The expression, keep it holy. If you read the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath day commandment is the only one commandment where this expression has been used. Keep it holy. You don't find it in the other Ten Commandments. And not only once did it uh, appear. appear. It, this word appeared twice. Because God has hallowed it. In verse 11, at the end of it. The word hello means that God has made it holy. Very interesting. The only Ten Commandments of the Ten Commandments where the word holy appeared. That's why it makes the Sabbath commandment very special amongst the Ten. Because the Sabbath day is about the principles of holiness. You see? Holy in the sense they make it special, set it apart, from the, make it different from the other days. So you see on your chart, uh, on, on, your, on your notes, that you'll find another diagram of the tree. And it's from the, remember, we, we have established the root of the tree is love. And then from the Sabbath day command, you find the concept of holiness being introduced. And holiness is that trunk, the trunk of the tree, that support for the rest of the branches and the leaves. Okay, so this is where that holiness comes in. And you can see what, what, what I mean by this. That remember, Sabbath day teaches the concept of holiness. Israel is to keep it holy, so they 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 have been introduced to holiness for the first time here. And one of the, one of Israel's first lessons on the principles of holiness can actually be seen in be seen in Leviticus ten. In Leviticus ten verse eight, and Moses said this. Uh, the, uh, the Lord said to 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 Moses and to Aaron. So then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, "Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink." You nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle or meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So this was the context in Leviticus 10. You, you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, isn't it? The two sons of Aaron the high priest. They went in the tabernacle with their incensor, you know, that they're supposed to put fire on the censer to create smoke, incense. So the law of Moses has specifically said that they must take the fire, the, the fire, the coal of fire, from a particular place in the tabernacle. But instead they took it from somewhere else. That's why they, they were stricken dead by God. And as a result of that, God said this uh, to Aaron, to tell him, you see, that as, as priests 
in your in your work, you are not to drink wine or intoxicating drink. So what it suggests is that the two sons of Aaron who got stricken dead by God may have been drinking before. So they went in there, they you know they, they were they were not thinking in their service, and then they took fire from somewhere else, put it and sensed that's so why God said, strike you dead. Because you have failed to make things holy. The work of the tabernacle is holy. And they have failed to do that. And verse 10 tells you the reason why that God has prohibited the priest from drinking. It's to distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And notice this also that in verse 11, that the Lord said that, And you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes. In other words, that God wanted not only the priest to learn about the importance of differentiating holiness and unholiness, clean and unclean, all Israel must learn these principles to treat holy things as holy and holy things as unholy clean as clean and clean as unclean so it's something that to be taught to Israel as a whole but why is it that the problem that started with the priest at the tabernacle ended up becoming lessons for all of Israel and of all the lessons it was the lessons of holiness why is it so? It is, I think it's because that the concept and the principles of holiness is a bigger concept than just the rules and regulations. You see? And that when you read the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, all the rules and regulations in it, it all finds its source back to holiness. You see? Yeah? All the rules and regulations trace its roots back to holiness. I think that's why that holiness is the bigger concept, a big umbrella, if you want to call it that way, where all the rest of the rules and regulations of Moses are shaded under. So this is, this is where that you find, that in, again, in the diagram that you see there, that there is the, 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 in the, the diagram there, the laws. The laws are the branches. Love is the root. Holiness is the trunk. And from the trunk, you have the branches. But this is where you get all the laws and regulations of Moses' law coming out. It's all supported by holiness. And this principle is very evident when you look at Leviticus. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, Leviticus says this, uh, you know, after talking about all the rules and regulations above it, the Lord said, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. For neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping things that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see, the concept of holiness, the principle has been mentioned, uh, you know, that in conjunction with those rules and regulations. And then later on, again, in, in Leviticus 19, verses 1 to 3, Moses said the same thing there. He said that, the Lord said that, uh, Speak to all the congregations of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Everyone and each every one of you shall revel his father and, and his and his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths for I, I am the Lord your God. You see holiness, you see the Sabbath connected to it. And then in Leviticus 20, you find a lot more laws in Leviticus 20 as well. And then again that Moses repeated the same principle in verse 7. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then verse 26 of the same chapter. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be, you should be, uh, you should be, that you should be mine. Wait a minute, uh, Nanny is calling me. I think she dropped off. Let me just uh, call Nanny in again. Okay. So when you look at this, this selection of passages in the book of Leviticus that tells us about holiness, it actually tells us, you see, that the different types of laws under Moses' law, was, they were all based on the concept of holiness. And the concept of holiness came from the Sabbath day concept, the, the commandment. You see, it ties everything together, you see. So what it tells us is that it all started with love as the roots, and then the Sabbath day commandment was given, that concept of holiness was introduced, and from that holiness principle of the Sabbath came all the rest of the branches of the laws of Moses, which are all related to holiness. You see? So God's law is neatly packed 
under Moses is all packed together very neatly by principles. Not by the rules and regulations, it's by the principles of love for God and love for our neighbor as ourselves and holiness. It's packed in this manner. So the, holy, the, the law becomes the branches. So when you look back in the Sabbath day breaking experience there, we, we've seen earlier, this is why, this is why that in Numbers 15, that that example appeared there just immediately after the presumptuous sin principles. They are principles, examples to show you how the principles work. You see? The Moses law is the same. The principles of love, the principle of holiness, and then all the other examples like branch out from there to show you how, how they work. You see? So it, Moses law is not intended by God, designed by God to be hard and fast strict rules and regulations. It was designed to be principles. You see? Okay, we can see this principle again uh, in the case of David. David's, you remember David murdered Uriah and Bathsheba's husband. So let's look at that example itself. Murder is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Exodus 20 verse 13 tells you that you shall not murder. So we know murder is, a, is, is one of the Ten Commandments. And what do you do with a murderer? Leviticus 24 verse 17 says that whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. So this is Moses' law on murder. Murder, death penalty. So we know that. That is a presumptuous sin. That it falls under that category. So, let's approach this law of murder in a legalistic way, yeah? Okay, let's imagine that we see Moses' law as strict rules and regulations and apply that strict rules and regulations to it. Thou shalt not murder. So what that, that means from a legalistic approach is that anybody who is guilty of murdering, murdering means committing the very act of killing the person, okay, the very act, yeah, of killing the person, shall be put to death. That's a strict legalistic approach. So in order for one to be guilty of murder, he must actually kill the person. Okay? Imagine if we approach that way. And apply that to David's case of Uriah. See whether David would be guilty of murder. So we, we know that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah. So 2 Samuel uh, chap uh, chapter 12, David was happily, uh, you know, uh, having this woman after, you know, that uh, Uriah, uh, Uriah was dead. And in 2 Samuel 12 verse 9, several months later, the prophet Nathan came along and told David a story, a parable, and then got David worked up, really worked up. And here are the words from the prophet Nathan to David. Where Nathan said in verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Despised the commandment of the Lord. Does it sound familiar to you? Numbers 15? Presumptuous sin? Because he has despised the commandment of the Lord? Yeah? So David was accused of a presumptuous sin. And then he goes on and said, To do evil in his sight. Notice what Uriah said. Sorry, not what Nathan, uh, Nathan said to David. You have killed... Uriah the Hittite with the sword. The Lord accused David of murder, murdering Uriah. But now the question for us is that did David actually murder Uriah? We look at the biblical record. We, 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 if we apply this legalistic approach, the murderer must stab the, stab the person to kill him. But David did not actually kill Uriah with the sword, doesn't he? He didn't actually do it himself. Why? We know that because in 2 Samuel 11, verse 15, the scripture tells us how Uriah died. You know, and it says this. And he wrote a, in, a, in the letter, David wrote a letter. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the front line of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So according to the Bible, what David had actually done was simply to write a letter to his commander, Joab, to ask Joab to send Uriah to the most dangerous part of the battlefield and then withdraw, leave him alone there and he'd be killed. So the people who actually killed him were the enemies. David did not literally stab him with, with a knife or chop him with, with a sword. So 
if we take a legalistic approach to Moses' law of you shall not murder, literally, David should not be guilty of murder because he, did not, he wasn't the one who actually stabbed Uriah to death. He only wrote the letter. But why is it that God insisted that David was guilty of murder? I think the answer is very simple. It is because the law of murder in the Ten Commandments was a principle. Not just a law, but a principle. A principles are intended to be applied flexibly. You see? Rules are very strict. The principles are flexible. So murder, by definition, tells you, you see, that David has a certain hatred against Uriah in his heart. And so he devised this scheme whereby he got him killed by someone else. And in the eyes of God, David, he may not have stabbed literally, he was guilty of murder. Because the principle of Moses' law bites on him. So it shows us, you see, very conclusively, that all the scenarios that we have seen from the examples we have seen, that Moses' law was intended by God to be principles, to be applied in a flexible way according to the cases, you see? Like the Sabbath day breaking case, like David's case, you know, uh, they, they are principles. Applying the strict legalistic approach to, to the Ten Commandments will not work. You know, a lot of people will go on scot-free, uh, like David will go off scot-free, but he didn't because it shows that. So people who look at Moses' law and, and look only at the illustrations and all those rules and regulations like you find in the book of Leviticus, they missed out, you see? They missed out the, God, the intention of God. Because if they are not looking at the basic roots of Moses' principle in, 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 in his law and jump to the conclusion that ah, Moses' law is all rules and regulations and take the legalistic approach to it, they will miss out on the principles altogether. I think this was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees that we've seen in Jesus' days. Isn't it? They took the law very literally. You see? And that's why that, uh, Jesus had to teach these people that they missed the point altogether. The, I mean, like, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's a good example of it. When Jesus talked about it, it has been said of old that you shall not murder. And then Jesus talked about murder being angry, anger in the heart as well. So it shows, you see, that the law of Moses was designed, designed to be for the heart, not for the actions alone. So it's principles of the heart. Adultery is the same thing, isn't it? Jesus talked about it. He, you, know, you don't commit adultery. Adultery, they, they, they saw it as an act. But Jesus said, no, it comes to the heart first. You lust after a woman, that is adultery. So it's a principle of the heart. So it shows conclusively to, to us that Moses' law was based on principles, not the rules and regulations. But then, of course, we want to ask ourselves the question, why did the Lord have to resort to this manner of teaching Israel by means of illustrations and examples to teach them principles? Why, 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 why did God do this? Uh, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 down to 25, 25, where Paul said this. He said that, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So Paul was talking about the faith. The faith is the gospel system in the New Testament. So what Paul was basically saying is that before Christ came into humanity's history, yeah, and, and established a new covenant, covenant with the Jews and Gentiles alike, the Jews, being God's chosen race and nation to begin with, they were kept under guard by Moses' law, Paul said. Moses' law was Israel's tutor or you call it the legal guardian. And the one of the duties of the legal guardian was to educate the young children under his, his guardianship, yeah, and, and raise them up to maturity. That, is the duty of, that was the duty of the guardian, the, the guardian. So this is why that Moses' law has got principles to start with, followed by many, many illustrations. Why? Because Israel just came out of Egypt they need to be taught, you know, they were spiritual babes. So they need to be taught the principles through the illustrations, the examples. You know, like we teach children, as in our kids, 
I, I don't know if you remember when you, when you, when you teach your, your, your children when they first learn to go to school. Don't run across the road, isn't it? You get run over by the bus and look right, look left, look right again and before it's clear, then you quickly cross the road, isn't it? We teach our children that. So these are illustrations, you see? But what was the principle behind it? Road safety, you see? Road safety. So you teach the principle of road safety by the examples. So we teach our children that way. And if you can understand, this is how we teach our children today, you'll be able to see the, the reason why God has Moses' law in this manner. It's to teach them, you see, about holiness, about loving God, and loving one another by all the examples in it. You see? So this is, this is why that, uh, you know, that it's such a great set of laws there, uh, you know, that are in, in, in Moses. So we have seen that. So that we have now established that Moses' law is based on principles illustrated by examples. So when we go back to the principle of agape love, you see the same pattern being taught. Principles of love followed with all the examples in Moses' law. You see the similarities in the pattern itself. Leviticus 19, uh, verse 11. You see all the illustrations given. Yeah? Leviticus 19, 11, where Moses said this. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely with you deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Sounds like the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, isn't it? Yeah? And then it goes on to say, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. Sounds like the Ten Commandments again. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And then in verse 13 it says, You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honour the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbour. You shall not go about as a tail-bearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbour, I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbour and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Notice the final words. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is the second of the great commandments that love your neighbor as yourself that Jesus talked about. That the foundation of Moses' law rests on. So in this context, you can see how, how the illustrations, illustrations teaches or teach uh, Israel to love their neighbors. How, how to love my neighbor? You see the example. Number one, do not steal from them. Don't deal falsely with them. Don't lie. Don't make an oath in the Lord's name falsely. Don't cheat. Don't rob the neighbor. Don't, do not withhold his wages overnight. Do not curse the deaf. You know, don't trick the blind. Do not do injustice. And so on and so forth. You see, you see the examples being given. So the commandment has got its principle of love illustrated by all these examples being given on how Israel was to love his neighbor and as, it, as themselves. That is the motive, the attitude, the heart. It's all based on that great principle of the great command to love one neighbor as, one's neighbor as, as himself. This is the kind of attitude that God wanted Israel to, to have. So, sort yourself out in your attitude and your emotions towards others. How do you do this? These are the examples of how you should, how you should act towards your neighbours. Seek their highest good always, which is also based on the, the principles of agape love. So love demands that an Israelite treat his neighbour fa fairly, treat his neighbour justly, treat his neighbour kindly, treat his neighbour with compassion in his heart. You know, that the love demands that, the, that an Israelite should never do anything wrong towards his neighbour. All these attitudes, motives, emotions and actions of love they're all from God as well. God works the same. You see? And that Israel must have the same mindset towards their neighbours as, 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 they, as they should. So here you see this is how Moses' law worked according to the Lord's will and design. God did not intend Moses' law to be applied as strict rules and regulations, but as flexible principles catered to every situation in life based on those principles. Brethren, so what we have seen so far is this. It is not true that Moses' law was not love-driven. 
In fact, it's the opposite. Moses' law is highly driven by law, by, by love, sorry, by love. And it is not true that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of love. We have seen from Moses' law. God is love in, in Moses' law. The entire law of Moses was based on love. The entire law of Moses was driven by love for God and for one another. That was the root principle of agape love. The illustrations were simply, simply examples of that principle. You see? And young, immature Israel needed to learn. And the best way for kids to learn is by examples. You see? Just like us when we teach our children. How do you teach your children to love others? Share. Right? Share your sweets with your friends. Share your toys with your friends. You see? If you tell simply just tell the kid that you need to love your friends, your kid will be saying, what, what is that? So you tell them, the way to love is to share. You see? So Israel had the same difficulty in their early days. They were spiritually babes. They didn't know anything. So God said, okay, you love your neighbors yourself, but Israel said, how do I love my neighbor? Do these things. You see? So this is illustrations of the principle. So this is how the God of, the, God of love of the Old Testament and the New Testament work. He weaved his principles of love into Moses' law. You know, and the same golden thread that runs out of Moses' law runs from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And it shows that God has never changed the way he loved people. Now, although the, the way that he does things is different, but his love has never changed. You see? And he expects Israel to love his neighbor and he expects Christians to love one another. The principles are the same. It's just his method of working was different. So let us therefore remove this erroneous thinking, you see, that the God of the Old Testament was very different from the New Testament. No, they are, they are the same and he, he has always been the same. God never changed. The eternal principle is that God is love and God never changed, whether in the Old or the New Testaments. So brethren, to close now, this is how Moses' law works. It's based on love, not rigid rules. Let us get this clear. I think it's important for us to understand it. Once you understand it this, in this way, you see the beauty behind, the, behind Moses' law and no longer see them as strict rules and regulations like the scribes and Pharisees. Thank you.